morning, it's great to be with you today as we continue our study in Genesis. As we start off, I'll ask you a couple questions as I like to do often. How do you deal with people who are better than you? We live in a world that invites comparisons and presentations of better, more successful, more attractive, smarter, and more virtuous people are coals that stoke the flames of a selfish heart. Think of the different realms in your life. I'll give you an example from my own. One realm is the gym. At the gym, there are people who are physically stronger than me. Plenty of people. When I see a guy lifting an amount of weight that I can't lift, my knee-jerk reaction is to serve myself in some way that kind of belittles him and puffs myself up. All right, so an example, if I see this going on, I'll say, well, I bet he devotes way more time to this than I do. So he must have bad priorities. (laughs) Well, he may be able to bench press a lot, but I bet his legs are not as strong as my legs. And if I can't find anything else, I'll say, oh, he may be strong, but, you know, I'm well-rounded, fit, smart, somewhat of a good personality. (laughs) And the same process kind of goes for other realms in my life. You know, uh, when I see people who are smarter than me in the classroom, when when I see people who seem to be living a more exciting life based on what they say on social media, or even when I see fellow Christians who appear to be having a closer walk with the Lord than me, I have to deal with people who are better than me in some way. How do you deal with people who are worse than you? In our comparison-seeking world, we live for these kind of moments. We'll go back to the gym for a second. If I'm at the gym and I happen to be one of only a few people there, which would be the only scenario in which I'd be the strongest person there, because most of the other people are probably older, then I go into Schwarzenegger mode, okay? Puny humans, this is my domain. I don't give others the benefit of the doubt that I give myself. I don't give the excuses to others that I give to myself. When the tables are reversed, I'm still self-serving. Dealing with better and worse people is especially relevant in the realm of character and morality. To serve ourselves and justify our sin in light of those who have a better character, we emphasize how easy they must have it. And then we emphasize how hard we have it. To serve ourselves when looking at people who have a worse character, all of a sudden our own sin gets erased. And they become an example for us to show that we aren't actually that bad. Phrases like, well, I'm not a murderer. God's character revealed in the actions of the gospel that he is holy and merciful, just and forgiving brings us from serving ourselves when dealing with our sin to dealing with our sin honestly. Think of Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, it says, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, 
extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. Serving himself, belittling the other person, puffing himself up. But the tax collector, Jesus says, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The gospel that Jesus Christ, God the Son, came to die for our sins forces us to be honest about our sins. And when we are honest about our sins, we realize we are more sinful than we ever imagined, than we ever would have imagined on our own. And we realize that our sin is far more serious than we have ever imagined because the required payment for it was the blood of the Son of God. But at the same time, the gospel forces us to deal with our sin. It forces us to see that we are more loved than we had ever realized. The gospel frees us from living the lie that we are okay, that we have to keep up appearances, that somehow we have to justify our sin, that somehow we have to justify our existence through how well we perform, through our own personal freedom, through having many possessions. All those things that will just go away. We weren't meant to live for those things. God's character of holiness and justice it forces us to deal with our sin as it is. But God's character of mercy allows us to be forgiven and to be freed. Freed from having to focus on ourselves. So today, we come to a point in Genesis that could easily heap coals on the fires of our selfish and self-serving hearts. It's a point in the book that while there's not an absence of faithfulness to God, there's an overwhelming amount of sin, of people who seem to be worse than us. In fact, what happens in Genesis 18 and 20 is meant more as a warning to us than it is as a way for us to puff ourselves up. But this warning is not entirely doom and gloom. It's a warning that takes sin seriously, but it's also a warning that's filled with the bright light of hope, of God's mercy. So this leads into what I believe to be the main point of Genesis 18 to 20. You can find it printed in your bulletin. God's essence and character should make sinful people humble, trusting, and loving. God's essence and character should make sinful people humble, trusting, and loving. As you may be able to recognize immediately after reading and hearing that main point, there are plenty of ways to unpack it. What is God's essence and character? How are people sinful? What does it mean to respond to God in humility and trust and in love? Those are the kind of questions we'll be answering throughout the sermon as we walk through each of these chapters. You know, normally I have multiple points that are kind of imperative statements uh, to organize the sermon. Today it's more like multiple sections or movements, and I'll do the same thing in each one. 
Okay, I'll, I'll narrate what's going on. Uh, then we'll see who God shows himself to be in each section. We'll see who people show themselves to be in each section. And then in light of the whole thing, examine how we should live in light of it. Okay, so first section, we're going to label the first visit, chapter 18. If you have a Bible and you haven't turned there yet, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 18. I have the page in advance today. It is on page 12 if you're looking at the Pew Bible. Page 12. Uh, if you're not used to looking at the Bible, this is a good place to be. Um, know that numbers in big, bold print are the chapter numbers, and the small numbers are the verses. I uh, hope that's helpful if you are not used to looking at the Bible. Uh, we're going to label all of Genesis 18 as the first visit. The reason for this will be cl become clear in a moment. And we're not going to read all of these chapters. We're not going to read all of Genesis 18, 19, and 20. One of the thoughts behind the sermon cards available in the lobby is that you can know the text in advance, and if you are so inclined, you can read the text in advance as a kind of way to see what's coming and to prepare your heart. But even if you haven't read in advance, you can let your eyes glean over as I kind of narrate uh, what's going on, and hopefully you can follow along. But before we do that, we need to look at the big story of Genesis so far. How have we come to the point of Genesis 18? Well, the big story of Genesis so far is that first, God created the world. God has always existed, and he created the world, and he created humans in his image and told them, basically, keep this going. Rule on my behalf. And at the end of all that, he calls this very good. But it doesn't take long, at least in terms of the actual verses, for people to usurp God's authority, disobey him, and thus bring curse upon themselves, their descendants, and all of creation. The peace of Eden is lost. But God promises to rid people of that curse, of the curse of sin, to rid people of the evil that carried them out of this peace with him through a seed of the woman who will crush the serpent that brought evil. So after Eden, we see that both sin and God's promise remains. God judges sin in the flood but raises up a kind of new Adam in Noah. He keeps his promise going. And after the flood, Noah's family and descendants, they remain sinful. So God judges sin. He scatters these nations at the Tower of Babel. But God keeps his promise going. He calls Abraham out of this chaos. And through his offspring, God promises that all the nations of the world will be blessed. And last week, we saw how that promise to Abram, or Abraham, is enshrined in what's called a covenant, a formal agreement that binds two groups together. And God promises that he will accomplish this co covenant, and he swears on his own life that a covenant involves two sides, that he's going to keep his side, and he promises, no matter what, that the other side, the human side, is going to keep their side. Oh, but if you've read the Bible... Humans fail time and time again. So this is a foreshadow that God's going to have to obey in our place. 
and take the punishment that we earned on himself. God promises to fulfill his covenant. But as the story goes on, Abraham and his wife Sarah, they fail in their trust of God. But God promises to stay. He grows them in their faith. He keeps his promise even when it seems impossible. And he ups the ante even. He calls them Abraham and Sarah, father of many nations. And he gives another sign of circumcision that will prove that God is almighty. So this gets us to Genesis 18. Now you glance at the text and kind of give the highlights of what's going on. Genesis chapter 18. Chapter begins with three men coming to Abraham. One of them is Yahweh, God, in the form of a man. And the two others are angels. They arrive at Abraham's doorstep or tent step at midday. And this isn't exactly a convenient time to arrive at Abraham's tent step. It's the hottest point of the day, and it's typically when people took their siesta. But inconvenience doesn't prevent Abraham from welcoming the guests, from offering them complete service, and giving them what would have been considered a royal banquet. This is verses 1 to 7. That's everything that goes on. So during or after this banquet... The visitors ask about Abraham's wife, Sarah. God reminds Abraham of the promise he made before, that within a year, Sarah is going to have her own child. Now, God's grand plan to use Abraham's offspring was lofty enough. But doing it in this way, that seemed impossible. So Sarah reacts like her husband did. She laughs. She's beyond the stage of childbearing in her body. And she's even beyond the stage of childbearing in her marriage. And she's basically accepted that. But God continues to reassure her and Abraham that this will happen. That's verses 9 to 15. But just as the visitors bring a message of hope and life, they also bring a message of judgment and death. In verses 16 to 21. God reveals to Abraham that he is getting ready to judge the sins of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, where Abraham's nephew, Lot, lives. So when revealing this to Abraham, God gives him the opportunity to intercede on these cities' behalf, to pray for them, to pray for the righteous people who live there. That's verses 22 to 33. So that's the basic idea of what's going on in this chapter. Now we turn to look at who God shows himself to be and who people show themselves to be. I'll give you three things about God and six things about people. Okay, number one, God shows himself to be gracious. He shows himself to be gracious. He appears to Abraham in a way that Abraham can understand. He expresses his commitment through thick and thin to keep his promise, regardless of how impossible it may be. God is gracious in dealing with Sarah. Like her husband, Sarah had faith, but that didn't mean that she didn't struggle with her faith. Here, when Sarah lied to God in verse 15, God is gracious and merciful and wants to restore her. God is gracious in warning about the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
He gives them time to repent. This is a pattern already established in Genesis. He warns of his judgment. He did this before the flood. So one theologian explains how we should think in light of God's graciousness in delaying his judgment. He says the issue is not why does God punish sin, but why does he permit the ongoing human rebellion? Friend, don't think that God will delay forever. See his grace now, that he's made a way to be reconciled to him through the life, death, and resurrection of his son. Number two, God shows himself to be powerful, to be powerful. One of the verses that shines the brightest in this section is verse 14. God responds to to Sarah's laughter. He says, is anything too hard for the Lord? A rhetorical question that reveals God's omnipotence, that God is all-powerful, should inspire us to revere and worship the Lord. It should chide us for acting as if he is not this way. God's question of himself here reminds me of, of the Apostle Paul's question in Acts chapter 26. So at this moment in Paul's life, uh, he's arrested and he's taken around for trials. He's standing under an examination of this king named Agrippa. And Agrippa's asking him about the gospel that he preaches that's causing so much chaos in Israel. Paul is wondering why people are so outraged and just flabbergasted by the gospel. He asks this question. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Nothing is too hard for God. And the same God of who that's true of is the same God who rose from the grave, defeating sin and death. God shows himself to be powerful. Number three. God shows himself to be just and righteous. Just and righteous. As we'll continue to see, God's judgment is fair and just. Verse 21, he explains that he will undergo investigation of Sodom and Gomorrah's sin. He's speaking in human terms there. God already knows what's going on. He's reassuring Abraham that this is fair. I know exactly what has happened here. Even when he's deliberating with Abraham, God assures him that those he will judge will deserve to be judged. Patterns the same throughout the whole Bible. You think of Rahab when the Israelites came and marched around Jericho. Rahab, who's a prostitute, called on the name of the Lord, and she was saved from judgment. God is just and righteous. And that's perhaps made the most clear in verse 25. He will do what is just. He will do what is just. And as the judge of the earth, he has authority to execute that judgment. So this is who God shows himself to be. What about people? People, on the other hand, number one, show themselves to be hospitable. Abraham goes the extra mile in welcoming the visitors. In ancient culture, 
even in the early church, hospitality, especially to strangers, was seen as one of the highest virtues. But in our individualistic culture, maybe it's time to recover hospitality. Now, hospitality won't look the same for everyone. Maybe it looks like inviting someone to a meal. Maybe it looks like walking up to a stranger at church and saying hello. But it always looks like inviting others into your life. Hospitality. And we invite others in because God has made a way to invite us in to his presence. Number two, people show themselves to be doubtful and denying. Doubtful and denying. You know, one of the testimonies of the accuracy of Scripture is that it doesn't hide the sins of its heroes. So here, for Sarah, it's kind of embarrassing what she does. She laughs at God's promise. It goes to show for us, friends, that we do not have to deny our sin. First John says that he who, does not, uh, he who says he does not have sin is a liar. So we confess our sin and ask for grace to repent and believe in the all-powerful God afresh. Number three, people show themselves to be righteous and just. Abraham's called to lead in showing the world how God acts. And here he does that, one of the rare times. He pleads to God based on what's right and wrong. He pleads to God based on justice. And he's careful to pattern his view of justice after God's view of justice. Like a little kid who mimics every move that his dad makes. Number four, people show themselves to care. People show themselves to care. Abraham pleads to God for people who are standing in the face of his judgment. He pleads to God. Will we do the same? Will we do the same? Will we pour out our hearts to intercede for the people who are facing eternity under God's just judgment and wrath in hell? Will we do the same? Will we plead that God would open their eyes to see that in Christ there is one to take their place, forgive them of their sins, and bring them into the family of God? Will we plead like Abraham? Will we plead like the prophet Jeremiah? Will we plead like the Apostle Paul? Will we plead like the Lord Jesus Christ? Number five, people show themselves to have good theology. Good theology. Abraham can plead with God because he knows who God is. What confidence could we have about the trajectory of the world if God is not all-powerful? If God is not holy, if God is not just, if God is not merciful, what confidence could we have? But verse 25, Abraham expresses that his knowledge that God's justice is never unfair. It is never whimsical. It is never tyrannical. It is a holy justice. So we strive toward a right view of who God is. And to do that, friends, we look to the only authority for that, God's self-revelation in the Bible. And we need to do that, especially as we encounter things we don't understand, especially as we encounter hard things like God's judgment. 
Finally, number six, people show themselves to be humble. People show themselves to be humble. I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Abraham says in verse 27. A proper view of God gives us a proper view of ourselves. God is bigger, stronger, wiser, holier, and more loving than any one of us. And that knowledge, that knowledge should humble us. That knowledge should characterize our prayers. It should characterize how we pray for others. It should characterize how we respond to something hard like God's judgment. It should characterize our entire lives. The second visit, chapter 19. Does anyone remember Venn diagrams? Venn diagrams. Yes, Rebecca, you too. Great. <laughs> it's a useful tool, but when I was in school, it seemed to be kind of an overused tool. Uh, it's for comparing and con contrasting two different subjects, and it involves two kind of slightly overlapped circles. So in the space where uh, the circles shared is where you would list characteristics that were similar between the subjects. But in the space that's unique to each circle, you list characteristics that are unique to each subject. Pretty self-explanatory. The thing that was annoying about Venn diagrams is that when teachers told you to draw them, you would either draw one circle bigger than the other, you would make them overlap too much so that you'd have too much space in the middle but not enough space on the sides or they wouldn't overlap enough so you have no space in the middle, not enough space, have too much space on the sides. Anyway, um, chapter 19 shows us several ways that Abraham and Lot, his nephew, and the other people of Sodom are different it's natural for us to contrast how the people of 18, of chapter 18, responded to the unchanging God with the people of chapter 19 who respond to the unchanging God. So once again, I invite you kind of to glean over the text as I give the basic idea of what's going on. Chapter 19 comes soon after the events of chapter 18. The two angels from the first visit go to Sodom, where Lot, Abraham's nephew, sees them at the city gate. And the city gate was a prominent place in most cities where much business transacted is likely that Lot was a big shot in Sodom. Lot, like his uncle, shows his visitors hospitality. Doesn't even know that they're angels. He does know that they probably need to go in and out of the city without being noticed. And it's telling of what he knows about the people of Sodom. Now, despite giving them a place to stay for the night, Lot's hospitality isn't quite as lavish as his uncle's. So once the visitors are in Lot's house for the night, chaos ensues. A mob composed of, of men, both young and old, forms outside of Lot's house. They desire, verse 5 says, to know the visiting men. And considering the use of this verb and Lot's shocked response, this refers to their desire to have sex with these men. And I, I want to be appropriate, but I, I, you can't pull any punches that the text doesn't pull. Lot knows that this is wrong, and he offers 
stunningly enough, his virgin daughters in the place of his visitors. He has no good choices here. It's the fruit of his decision to live in a place like Sodom. And the men of Sodom don't respond too kindly to this offering from Lot. They resent Lot. They forget that it's because of Lot, because of Lot's connection to Abraham, that they escaped the rebellion-crushing kings of chapter 14. The angels take over the situation. They get Lot and his family out of the city before God judges it. Although Lot and his family aren't exactly eager to leave. Lot, pleased to go to another small city. His wife longs for Sodom and has turned to salt. And then he and his daughters end up living in the hills where his daughters concocts a plan to continue their father's offspring via incest. This is one of the most sobering, difficult chapters to read, I would argue, in the whole Bible. Genesis 19. And one of the reasons why we primarily preach systematically through books is that you have to deal with hard texts like this. You can't avoid them. So with the narration done, you keep the same pattern. Who does God show himself to be? And who do people show themselves to be? I'll give you three about God, two about people. Number one, God shows himself to be holy and just. God is unique. God is set apart from all creation. He is glorious goodness. In him there is no darkness at all. And God's holiness is a reminder that his judgment is a holy judgment. His justice is informed by his holy character. If God is not this, then God is not God. If God does not punish evil and wrongdoing, then he is not worthy of worship. But reading the account of Sodom and Gomorrah may cause you to think that this just can't be what God is like. God is love. Well, how do you know that God is love? Do you see that empirically from the world? Do you have actual evidence for it? Can you clearly discern that God is love from history? Is this the dominant attribute, love, of God presented in the other major faiths? The answer to these questions is, is no. The place where you learn that God is love is the Bible. But the Bible also tells us that the God of love is the God of judgment who will put all things to right in the end. So some may be tempted to use kind of a Venn diagram for the supposed God of the Old Testament and God of the New Testament. For those who think this way, they really haven't read much of what Jesus actually said. In the passage we read earlier from the Gospel of Luke, people come to Jesus asking him to explain why certain local disasters happened. Now, it's not that Jesus is cold here, but he uses the opportunity to kind of turn their question on themselves, something he often does. They shouldn't be asking, what about those people? Rather, they should be asking, Jesus says, what about us? 
Unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. So in the face of something like Sodom and Gomorrah, we ask, what about us? What about you? On our own, we are all under God's judgment. Friends, there is only one innocent person to have ever lived, and he volunteered for suffering. Jonathan Edwards said this, Almost every natural man that hears of hell flatters himself that he shall escape it. We don't say this to frighten people. We say this as a warning, a warning that we ourselves need. That leads into number two. God shows himself to be merciful. Have you anyone else here? The angels asked Lot, making sure that everyone got out. Escape for your life, they say in verse 17. A merciful warning. I grant this favor also, verse 21. God remembered Abraham, verse 29, and saved Lot. God is just and holy, but he shows mercy. Perhaps this comes no clearer than in verse 16. Verse 16 of chapter 19. The angels urge Lot to leave with haste. Come on, Lot, we gotta go. You need to pick up your stuff and get out of here. Move. What does it say? Lot lingered. And so the angels, what do they do? They, they don't just leave him there. They grab a hold of him and his family. Says, Come on, if you're not going to go on your own, we're going to take you out of here. Why? Verse 16 says, because the Lord was merciful to him. If Lot's salvation depended on his own righteousness, then he would have been caught in the destruction of the city like everyone else. But like anyone else's salvation, it is not dependent on our own righteousness, but on God's mercy. Titus 3.5 He saved us, not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Friends, that should humble us. That should cause us to worship and give thanks. It should cause us to sing louder. That song we sang earlier, why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? So if you're here and you're not sure you've received God's mercy, see that God does not change. He remains holy and just. But see that God stays the same and that he still extends his hand to you in mercy through Christ, his son, and by repenting of your sin and trusting in Christ alone as your Savior and your Lord, God's justice for your sin is satisfied. It's carried out. It's put on Christ, who is the perfect substitute. And that's proven by his resurrection. For people who have received God's mercy, don't keep it to yourselves. God uses his people to make this good news of mercy known so tell it. Number three, last thing about God. God shows himself to be sovereign. You look at verse 29. The point is that God is able to do what he says he will do. He said he will judge sin, and he's able to judge sin. He said he is able to save, and he saves. It's related to be God being all-powerful. He doesn't just have the character of being holy and just and merciful. He's able to do something about it. Who do people show themselves to be? 
Number one, people, on the other hand, show themselves to be utterly sinful. To be utterly sinful. The state of Sodom is the product, as Romans 1 communicates, of God removing his restraints from people and giving them over to their sin. The sin of Sodom can first be seen in contrast to Abraham. One commentator says, Whereas Abraham extended himself to serve his guests, the Sodomites tried to consume their guests in service to themselves. The sin of Sodom, though, is invariably associated with homosexuality. And how should we think about this? Here are some brief thoughts, and I was helped greatly uh, by this book. Is, is God Anti-Gay uh, by Sam Alberry. Short, fantastic book, helpful resource. From the onset, we must remember that what the Bible says about homosexuality isn't the only thing we need to explain about our faith to friends who may be gay or friends who may have this as a stumbling block for them. What the Bible says about homosexuality is probably not the first thing or even the main thing to focus on with these friends. When reading the Bible as a whole, homosexuality just doesn't even come up all that often, contrary to common belief. In fact, later parts of the Old Testament accuse Sodom of other sins like oppression, adultery, lying, abetting criminals, arrogance, and indifference to the poor. That being said, homosexuality is still present here and in the Bible, and it is still a sin those in Sodom commit. In the New Testament, places like 2 Peter and Jude they hold up what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah as a warning that God takes sexual sin very seriously. Sex outside of God's design of a committed marriage between one man and one woman is against God's revealed purpose for us. But what about how we feel? What about how we desire, what we desire? All of us have desires for things that God has forbidden. But that doesn't mean that we should act on them. And it doesn't mean we aren't made in God's image. Our desires for things God has forbidden are a reflection of how sin has distorted us, not of how God has made us. The sin of homosexuality is incredibly serious. But it's not alone in being incredibly serious. Read 1 Corinthians 6. Yes, God will judge those who indulge in homosexuality. But you know what? He will also judge idolaters, adulterers, thieves, drunkards. The point is everyone can find a place on this list. And the last thing to say about our utter sinfulness, including homosexuality, is that though sin affects all of us, it is not inescapable. Read 1 Corinthians 6. You'll see that Paul lists all these different kinds of sin. But then he does something interesting. He says in verse 11, Such were some of you. 
such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. God's design is for your good. It's to give you life. It's not to restrict it. And his grace in Christ both forgives us and it transforms us. I'm not saying it's going to happen like this. But what I am saying, whatever struggles you may have, especially regarding sexual sin, we want to listen and we want to help you live and thrive before a holy and loving God who made you and who sent his son to die for you. People show themselves to be utterly sinful. Number two, people show themselves slow to believe, slow to believe, all over the place in this chapter. Lot attempts to persuade his sons-in-law to escape the city, and they think he's joking. Verse 14. The world at times can't handle anything that is remotely serious or meaningful. But as much as we can control it, let no one ever make the mistake that we aren't serious about who God is and about how he treats sin. People are slow to believe. We see Lot's worldliness cause him to be slow to believe. He's attached to the wrong things. He lingers in Sodom. He pleads for another small city because he can't live in anywhere else beside a city. Lot's wife is slow to believe and looks back towards Sodom. Even after pleading for this small city, Lot ends up being too afraid to live there because he's slow to believe that God can protect him. And this planted a garden where his daughter's unbelief could blossom. They didn't believe the power of God to provide children. The one who had promised their old relative that she would have a son. And these daughters did what was right in their own eyes and brought disastrous consequences for years to come. Slow to believe. And we look at these and wonder, you're, you're living in Bible times. Like you, look, look at what you've seen. How could you be so slow to believe a God like this? Has God changed? We too are indicted in the same way. We are slow to believe. The third scene, very quickly, very quickly, is the familiar journey in chapter 20. Second half of chapter 18, all of chapter 19, kind of an excursus, kind of a side plot. We're left to wonder what's happening with the major storyline. What's happening with God's promise to Abraham and Sarah? When will this child come? Can this child even survive in a kind of environment like this? What happens in chapter 20 is similar to what happens when Abraham and Sarah went to Egypt in chapter 12. Abraham assumes something bad will happen when he's in the foreign land of Gerar. That the king there will take his wife for himself. Abraham forgets God's promises to him. He doesn't seek God's guidance. And then he lies in order to protect himself. So that when the foreign king does take Sarah, God has to intervene. And Abraham is convicted that he acted sinfully. But for all that, Abraham and Sarah made it out fine. And somehow they make it out even richer than they were when they came in. 
So where the story starts is people, not God, which is kind of telling. So here on the whole, people show themselves to be unfaithful. Abraham falls into the same sin brought on by the same situation. Abraham again doubts God's power. Despite previously showing care for outsiders, Abraham fails to care for the people of Gerar and simply assumed that everyone there was wicked. God, on the other hand, shows himself to be faithful, even when we are not. 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. God protects Abraham despite his faithlessness and even reverses the consequences caused by Abraham's sin and even uses Abraham's own prayers to do that. So just when everything's about to have a happy ending, just when the child's about to come, the plan's put in jeopardy. Sarah's taken captive. And at this point, there is absolutely no shadow of a doubt that salvation must depend on the faithful Lord, not unfaithful people. So friends, here is a good place to end. We titled these chapters, Abraham in a Sinful World. And we are in the same sinful world. But we are no better than the sinful world around us. Those in Christ are sinners. Sinners saved by grace. And even though we are in the same sinful world, we serve the same holy, just, merciful, powerful God. The God who has rescued us from the judgment of our sin by putting it on his son, Christ. And now we're not called to stand over the world. We are called to live in it, to call out to the world, pray for those who will face God's judgment without Jesus in their place. And we are called to live in ways that reflect God's goodness and display God's power, even when we fail. Boy, does this make us humble. Thank you to our God. Let's pray. Lord, we are but dust and ashes. We are but dust and ashes. Would you keep us having a right view of you and so that we can have a right view of ourselves? God, we see difficult passages like this, but if we look closely, we see that you are still good and that your justice is not compromised, but it's maintained. You do not change. You remain faithful. You remain wise and holy and just, and you remain merciful. Would we be humbled in light of that? Would we give thanks to you in light of that? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.